What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. This is Bill Allen. Today, I have a really good friend of mine on the podcast, and we hadn't caught up in a while, and it was amazing to catch up and hear what he's been doing. Uh, we talked about how investors stink at follow-up and why we don't get as many deals as we should because of that one little thing. And uh, in this podcast, we're going to talk about one thing that you can start thinking about and doing to get better at follow-up and how you can do more deals just from that. So not even spending any more money just with the leads you already have in the pipeline and what you're missing. So uh, I had an amazing time talking to Danny Johnson. He is the host of the Flipping Junkie podcast, the blog, and wrote a book called Flipping Houses Exposed, which was what got me started uh, in real estate investing, which we talked about today. So uh, here he is, Danny Johnson, and me talking about how you suck at follow-up. And I hope you enjoy it. My name is Bill Allen, and I'm the leader of a group of elite house flippers and wholesalers called Seven Figure Flipping. We don't brag or show off our success, but instead let integrity and stewardship be our guide. We are dedicated to helping people unlock the freedom they desperately need. If you ask other real estate investors, they will say to keep your secrets quiet. But we believe in abundance, not scarcity. And that's why we are the elite. We are Seven Figure Flipping, and this podcast is our playbook. What's up, everybody? I have got an amazing guest for you guys today, a good friend of mine, and I can't wait to catch up with him a little bit and hear about what he's got going on right now. So uh, I, th I don't think he needs an introduction, but I'm going to ask him to give you guys one real quick, but he's been on the show quite a few times, and I know he's uh, been in our world for a really long time at uh, Seven Figure Flipping here. So uh, this is Danny Johnson. Hey, Danny, how are you? Good. How are you, Bill? I'm doing awesome. I thought you were talking about somebody else. I was like, what? <laughs> Did you look over your left shoulder and right shoulder and say, uh, who is that? So can you give them, uh, I don't know, give the listeners, I think we actually have a lot of new listeners, I think. Um, we kind of changed uh, some of the podcast structure and stuff. So um, if they haven't heard you on the show or uh, know about your podcast, Flipping Junkie Podcast, uh, maybe just give them a quick background on you. Sure. So 2003, got started. I was a software developer. My dad started flipping houses. I was stuck in an office behind a desk all day long and, and pretty miserable, um, not being challenged and trading hours for dollars. While my dad had sort of like a new outlook on life, he was super pumped just talking about all the stuff he was doing, the deals he was doing, and just like his his like zest for life at that point, like really sparked an interest in me. And I was like, wow, that sounds like adventure. It sounds like fun. And I want to do it too. And so I started learning because he didn't give me step-by-step. Step. He just said, look, go learn it and start taking action. And whenever something comes up, I'm there to, to help you out, you know, to answer questions, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. Um, he, he's in the smaller outer markets of San Antonio. I'm in San Antonio proper. And, uh, and so that's the way it worked. His mentor also became my mentor. So I had another person, but again, it was figure it out, take action, make mistakes, we're not going to hold your hand. We're not going to tell you how to find a deal. Like you can figure that out. You can go and do that. When you come across what to do, we'll help you out. And, and one example of that, and I'll just be real quick with this was, you know, the first contract I think that I wrote and got signed, not only was my hand shaking like crazy and it looked like a three-year-old, you know, wrote that contract. But when I, I took it to the title company, I sat in the parking lot and I actually had to call my dad and say, Hey, uh, I got the contract signed. What am I supposed to say when I go in here? Like, I didn't even know, like, I didn't know who I was supposed to talk to, what I was supposed to say. I didn't know any of that stuff. And it just goes to show, you know, you can learn some things. You don't need to really know all of it to take action and figure it out. Right. And, 
you know, if you don't have somebody like that, you know, joining groups and being a part of even RIAs, sometimes you'll have somebody at least that you can speak to if you don't have uh, somebody that's already doing that. But anyway, you know, fast forward, got into the business, made a ton of mistakes, uh, was part-time for about three years, which I think actually helped because it made me focus on the 80-20, you know, the 20% of things that produce 80% of the results because I just didn't have the time to, to do that. So checking on rehabs, and looking at properties on my lunch breaks and in the evenings and on weekends. And uh, got fired from my job after three years, probably because I was focused more on the house stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I needed that. When I went full time, it was actually pretty hard because I found myself wanting to fill up the day and I ended up wasting time doing piddly stuff that was just, you know, creating a to-do list to do stuff. And so that was tricky. So if you're, if you're at a job and, uh, and working that and having trouble with that, you know, look at it in that way as, as far as figuring out what will move the needle the most, focus on that and work on it. But did the business, uh, my ex-wife and I for eight or nine years, I think ourselves wearing all the hats. And that was cool at first, you know, it was okay. It was like, well, if we don't have a team, we don't have that responsibility. We can go on vacation for two months. Well, guess what? We never really went on vacation for two months because we were wearing all the hats right? The marketing went out, calls were coming in, we couldn't miss those. And so even on vacation for a short period of time, it was stressful because nobody was there to look at the properties if we got a great lead or something like that. So that was pretty tough. It wasn't until uh, meeting Justin Williams and, uh, and talking with, with him about building a team, having a team, right? And what that means and, and breaking down all these false beliefs and all these barriers that I put up for myself and, and making that transition. You know, I had so many excuses, so many fears, like I, I'm not trained in business. You know, all of this was kind of like a hobby. I mean, it was, it, it was actually operated like a hobby. I mean, it was just something like that. And I felt like if I made it more of a business, it wouldn't be fun anymore. And so a lot of those false beliefs and, and uh, you know, he helped me and the group, you know, seven figure was instrumental in making that pivot for me and helping change the way I saw the business and how we operated the business. And with that grew a team, which got me freedom, which is what I was after all along, right? And uh, it helped me to create that freedom to start doing other things and creating software for real estate investors and doing all those things. And so here I am today with uh, software for real estate investors, Forefront CRM and podcast and all that kind of good stuff. You know, it's funny because you you said freedom and it's like you're, you're saying all the things that we we've really sat down as a company at seven figure flipping recently since i bought the company in uh, 2019 and trying to what's our mission statement who are we what are we really trying to do you know what, what if somebody like like what's our niche what is it and we really said it's we want to help others create their freedom dream like follow their dream we've given away these freedom cards over the past two masterminds where our members can write down what their freedom dream is carry it around in their wallet basically and look at it all the time and say, this is freedom for me. And it's going to be different for everybody because in the beginning it was like build a million dollar company. Like there was this race, like when Mike Simmons uh, won the race to a million bucks and, and I was in there as like 20 people in there in the very beginning. And, and you were there at the first flipback line event where they got their lays and they're going to Fiji and all this stuff. And that was it. And really it like broke a lot of stuff for a lot of us um, at that time. And, but I, I mean, a lot of good came of it, but we just ran and ran and ran and we were trying to get to a million bucks without just leaving everything in the dust behind us, all the, the wake of disaster that went with it. And, um, but really I think freedom is, 
what we're all searching for is either time freedom, financial freedom, and then we have impact freedom as one of the things we give away its freedom award now too at Copac and Live for the last two years. This big, huge plaque because not everybody wants a million dollar business. They might want a four or five hundred thousand dollar lifestyle business every year. And the award we give out for the Seven Figure Club is not for them. And freedom might be it. They only want to work, you know, a couple hours a day, a couple hours a week. And so um, the question that I specifically have for you in your story was in the very beginning. You said you got that first contract and you just went in the title company or called your dad. You didn't know what to do with it, right? Were you always that way? Like you didn't have to figure things out. You were fine just knowing like some of it, or was it something that you saw in your dad or like, where did that come from? And, because I think a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, when you were saying that, when you were asking that, I was thinking to myself, what do you mean an idiot? <laughs> it's like, because really, I mean, it kind of like if people saw, but yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know where that comes from. I, I think it's, um, I guess it's the willingness to be okay with looking like an idiot. I mean, that, that's what it boils down to. I think a lot of us will do all kinds of things to avoid looking stupid. Mm. And, you know, if I, you know, especially like if you're working with motivated sellers, which is how we ended up having any success in this business was directly working with motivated sellers, going in and, and having to make an offer that I'm so embarrassed to make was the ultimate test of that because you know, somebody could laugh at your face, somebody could get pissed off and yell at you. Um, you know, I've had it where 20 year old son was standing next to the mom when I offered $1,000 for a house. And just the look where he looked like he wanted to kill me. And, you know, just like being okay with with just doing those things, knowing that most likely you're not going to be killed. And uh, you won't die. And, you know, it's it becomes a little bit like a game, I guess. But um, I think just having that ability to to do it knowing that that's the only way you're going to get the result that you want to get, right? If, you, if you're avoiding looking stupid and so you're avoiding doing anything, you'll never really have any kind of thing. So you end up just with regret, right? So it's the pain of doing that, I guess, is greater than, you know, what comes from not doing it, which is just regretting and just being frustrated that you're not making any progress in your life that you want to make. Do you think seeing your dad have success in all of that allowed you to to see that it's kind of like possible to do uh, because I'm just trying, I, I, I see the concept. I, I love that concept of just not caring if you sound like an idiot or, or just do I something care. that is wrong, right? Not, not you specifically, but everybody, right? So like, because I have always been trying to, I need to have things figured out and it took me a lot of time to transition to just go, right? Just take action and not have to worry about it. And kind of figure it out along the way, right? A lot of people say like, um, build a plane on the way down, that kind of stuff, right? And so, I don't know, was some of that, uh, at least from the motivated seller path, from, came from your dad and seeing how like happy he was. And oh, for, sure. for sure, and, and I think actually even to help answer the, the last question, because you just brought up a good point. I think knowing that I had that fallback, I had that mentor, you know, I had somebody, you know, I had seven figure, I had people in that group, I had, those things later on in the business, right? Like having those to be able to, to go and, and say that helped uh, to know that even if I made a mistake, like, or, you know, needed help with something, there were people there to do that. But, but I think seeing, yeah, for sure, seeing that it was possible because he was doing it. Now I do remember very clearly looking for that first deal. And uh, I think it took me like nine months, I think, to find my first deal. And it was actually a house I was going to move into myself. 
um, to fix up and end up being a HUD home. And I remember very clearly, you know, getting really frustrated with him because I was like, how are you finding deals left and right? And I can't even find one right? Like it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work in San Antonio. You're in those small towns. And all those thoughts were playing out. It was like, well, it's only working for him because he's not in competitive city, right? I had all those thoughts for months and, and it took him saying, no, just keep going, keep going, keep going. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's like most people probably heard you, you get that one and the next one comes pretty quickly. And it's, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. That difference between like zero and one deal is huge. Uh, that first one is especially, and it's, it could be the first one in in any different area. So a lot of people hear me say that and say, "Oh yeah, but I've already got my first deal." Well, you might not have gotten your first owner finance deal, or you might not have gotten your direct to sell first direct to seller deal, or your first uh, duplex or quad or whatever it is for you. Because I, I remember that I, I had done a couple deals before. I kind of thought I knew what I was doing, but I was far from that, right? And but getting that first direct to seller deal under contract that wasn't from a realtor, wasn't from an auction, wasn't from all the other things. It was like a whole new air area of exploration. And once I did that, it was like, whoa, just the sky's kind of open and you can just do a ton more. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of momentum that gets built on all of that stuff. So, um, you know, so you wrote a book and it's, uh, so if anybody, for those of you that are listening, I, still remember exactly where I was when I, when I was reading this book, I, uh, I was really cheap. I didn't have, I didn't spend money on, I, I definitely didn't spend $25,000 on a mastermind group. Didn't spend money on events. I looked for RIAs that were free and usually gave away free food and other stuff like that. I was super cheap. And you guys have heard it before. I, I had a library card. I got all my books at the library. Uh, this was on, and I don't know if it still is, you, you tell people where to get it, uh, but it was on Kindle. It was 99 cents. And I was like, I am pulling the trigger to buy this. I was just looking for real estate books that were free on Kindle. You know, there's, there's, they have free downloads and stuff like that. And it was 99 cents. And I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to buy this thing and read it. And I didn't know who you were. I didn't know about the podcast, the blog, anything like that. I found this book. And I was like, I, it was, it was in England. So I was with uh, Lucy. We were visiting her family. And um, I just read this thing cover to cover. I remember being in their spare bedroom. Lucy was asleep next to me. I picked it up at like 11 o'clock. I had huge, horrible jet lag, right? There's a you know, six hour time change and I couldn't sleep. And I just read this thing until like four in the morning, cover to cover. And it was awesome. Like it just changed the way, just like you said, direct to seller marketing was something I had no idea about. And this was the first taste that I got of that. Um, and it was just, it was really cool to read it. And then obviously eventually meet you, build a friendship and uh, it's kind of surreal to um, all that stuff. So. What, if you just talk about the book a little bit, I think it's, I think it will be really powerful for, uh, for other people to, to hear about and maybe some lessons learned from it. Yeah, for sure. So the, the book Flipping Houses Exposed, it was 34 weeks in the life of a successful real estate investor, I think is, is how it was titled. But it was documenting 34 weeks in the business. That's actually started as blog post on Flipping Junkie um, blog. And I was getting, ramping my business back up and I was needing accountability. I wanted accountability and I wanted to show um, everything in the business, because at the time, and I think still probably the blogs will either show all the how to's, but don't show, show the deals and stuff people are doing, or they show the deals are doing, but don't show how they got the deal, right? Here's a house, here's the numbers, but they didn't, how did you get it? How did you, what was the seller uh, situation? What was all that stuff going on? So I, I just documented all that. And I showed, I think of the 34 weeks to generate 495 leads, motivated seller leads. And uh, 
you know, just talked about why people were selling, what I offered, what happened, whether I bought the house or not. And, uh, and that's, that's really the gist of it. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, you know, breaking down what reality is. And, and like you said, I had a lot of people tell me that that was like, it showed me for sure that it was a numbers game. I mean, if I just kept going, because I think a lot of people, like I had the frustration the first nine months, I say nine months, but if I think back about trying to get that first deal, how many offers I probably made, I think, I don't think it was more than, than eight or 10 over nine months. Right. And then you look at once you get in the business for any length of time, you start to know your numbers and it's different for different people considering what they do and how well they are at closing deals. But, but you find that, uh, that it really ends up being that it ends up being that, you know, if, if you make three offers and they get rejected and you get disheartened and you quit, wow. You know, it's just, that's so common. You can make 20 offers and still not get that first deal. It's common just keep going, right? It's just to take action. And we just talked before this about, you know, how you quickly grew your business, which greatly impressed me. And, you know, and, and you shared a story about a farmer's market that you did and the way you did it. And it's just because just like when, when we started this conversation, it was taking action, right? Not knowing exactly how things were going to go, what exactly was going to happen, but you took action, right? You figured out what's the next step I need to make to make this happen. And I think one thing that I did get that really stayed with me from, from my dad was everything that you're doing leads up to the appointment, right? Like, so all the work involved in doing all the marketing, getting the calls, doing analysis, everything goes up to the appointment. And so that's super important, but really if you're not getting appointments, right? Like you work back from that, from, from deals to offers to appointments and you work back if you're not getting contracts, if you're not putting anything in a contract, you have to, to, to work back into what that is that's, that's causing that problem, right? So looking at your funnel and especially being brand new, I think that that's really important to always know those numbers. That ends up being KPIs, right? Key performance indicators so that you can, you, if you measure that, I think the, the progress and the motivation because you're building momentum helps you. And, and no matter what level you are in the business, you know, because we operated at 30 plus deals a year without doing all that for a while. And it became this, this thing that was like a, a hamster wheel, you know, just stuck on this thing. And the only thing I was really going off of was more leads. I don't have enough deals. So I need to just get more leads. I need to try the next coolest crazy thing that people are doing to generate leads. And it's just like this endless, uh, you know, thing where you have some success because you're getting some deals. And so you think, well, I need to do more. So I'm just going to do more of that, you know, or try some other things and keep doing that. And you, so you have some success and you try to have more success by working harder, spending more time. And that, that was what we did for too long, got burned out. Yeah. And usually it's more money too. I always hear people say it's, they'll add something in and say, it's just one, one, one more deal that I have to do. Like it's $10,000 thing. And that's another $10,000 thing, another $10,000 thing. And it's just another another system, another, uh, another lead source. And, and it's just one more deal. And I, I remember telling my team last year, it's just like, man, if we say one more deal a hundred times, we got to do a hundred more deals. Like it just, you keep saying the same thing. You sound like a broken record. We've got to really think about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And so I agree. It is like crunching. Everybody just tries to drive more traffic in more leads, more leads, more leads. 
But I, I truly think that Moneyball is definitely the offers made. I mean, in our, our previous conversation, we talked about offers. Like, I, I know that if I make more offers, we will do more deals. It's just, it's the way it works. So, and, and I, we've got to make sure, I, just recently, we looked at our sales reps numbers and we had to tell her, like, look, you're not making enough offers. Like, why are you not making offers on these properties? Just make offers. And like you said, sometimes it's an embarrassing offer that you have to make, but you got to make it. I mean, I remember exactly where I was and some guy said he'd rather burn his house down and sell it to me and proceeded to walk to the front door and point it and, and tell me exactly what every other house sold in the neighborhood sold for. Um, when for the three hours before that I was sitting on his couch talking to him, he told me he had no idea what his house was for three hours. And I asked him 10 different times. He just wanted some somebody to come hang out with him on Saturday and I was away from my family. And that is, that is a very defining moment of my life and my business. And I said, I will never do this again. And I need to hire a sales rep because it's a Saturday. I just spent three and a half hours with this old man that had no desire to sell me his house, but he conned me into coming and hanging out with him and, and get away from my newborn, you know? And so like those offers are so, so important. So when you look back on that experience that you had from like writing the book and and all those those leads, like what did you find? Because I remember like looking at it now, the number of leads that you got versus the number of deals that came from it. Like looking at that math right now, like and I hate to say it really, but I would be disappointed in my team and my staff and the business, right? Because I, I did you do like eleven or twelve deals or something like that from there? Right. Yeah, it worked out to about one out of every forty-five leads became a deal. So why? So why is that? And like, what are some things that you think? Um, other investors could take from that. And I realized it was a little while ago, but maybe there's probably some lessons learned there. Oh yeah, for sure. Because we ended up, I think we at a point we got to where with the team, we were doing like one out of every five, between one out of every five, one out of every seven. So had we been at that conversion rate when I generated the 495 leads, you know, we're talking of instead of 11 deals or so, we're talking, you know, like 40, 50. You know, we're just talking about a good number. I don't know the math on this. If you do thing, one in right? five, that's like a hundred, like 90 to a hundred. Oh, one maybe so. Yeah. So even it's just a crazy amount, right? I mean, it's, it's insane. Yeah. And so like what's 10 the times, difference? 10 times the conversion of what we have, which is yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, uh, and, uh, you know, so what, what was, what were all the things that changed between writing the book and when we were getting one out of five, one out of seven? I've, I've spent a lot of time recently looking at all of that. And in considering what that was, because it's so vastly important, because it just changes the amount of work that we're all spending doing all this stuff. Because, um, you know, getting back to this whole freedom thing, you know, getting into the business, I, I think probably 90 plus percent is my assumption of people really want maybe even 100 percent, who knows, like truly want freedom, right? They want the wealth to have the freedom. I mean, it's just everything ends up being that. And I see too many people and I myself for too long got stuck in something where I was working harder than I've ever worked before. I was making good money, but I was kind of trapped. And so the biggest difference was doing everything ourselves. Like, so I was, you know, doing all the marketing, taking all the calls, going to all the appointments, making the offers, putting them under contract, making sure they closed, uh, doing rehab scope of work, getting contractors started, checking con rehabs, doing all that stuff. And it's just way too much. The ball's getting dropped left and right. And I didn't realize it after a time, uh, I would even take a call from a motivated seller and I would get off the phone and, uh, you know, Melissa would be like, do you realize how rude you sounded? I'm like, wow. You know, it's like, I didn't even want to take the call. I was just sick and tired of it. I just, 
you know, I had other things I had to do. And it's like, again, going back to the, what's the most important thing here? Why are we doing all this? You do all that marketing, get that call. So if you don't treat that call with the respect it deserves or the amount of time or attention it deserves, you're not operating efficiently at all. And in fact, you then have to do even more marketing because you screwed up a bunch of calls or didn't answer the calls or return them too late. And it creates this whole cycle of problems. And so having that team come in changed all of that because then people were focused on doing what they needed to do. People, somebody else could spend the three hours on somebody's couch and it was okay because that was their job. Like they knew that doing that greatly improved their chances of getting the house under contract and getting them commission and, uh, you know, changed all that. So that was huge. That was pivotal having the different people become experts at their positions, because even though we're good at it, even when we're doing it all, because we know all of it, having somebody else focused on it really drastically changes that increases the efficiency. So you don't have to do as much marketing. You don't have to get as many leads to do the same amount of deals, which in a market like this market means everything, right? Because there is competition and houses are selling quickly. And, uh, you know, to, to be able to turn more leads into deals is what it's all about. The other side of that, after looking at it for a long time, and hopefully there's, there's noise in the background, hopefully that's not uh, picking up too much, um, is, is the follow-up. When I was doing the, the blog post for the 34 weeks that became the book, there was almost no follow-up. I would make the offer if they didn't take it. I might have called them back a day or two later and that was it, right? But I had so many calls coming in, so many appointments and all that kind of stuff that I was not following up. And, and I know that we all hear it all the time. Fortune is in the follow-up. But I'm telling you, even experienced investors are not doing it. They're just not doing the follow-up, even after knowing it, and even after having companies with, with teams that they could leverage to do that follow-up are not doing the follow-up. With, uh, with Forefront CRM that I have, we have customers and we'll have a, we have Q&A calls every two weeks. And we literally just a couple months ago, I asked everybody on the call, who's doing using the, the follow-up and doing follow-up? And half the people on the call said, yes, half weren't. I didn't have to say anything because the half that were, were getting on to the half that weren't saying, dude, we're doing deals and you guys are missing out. And it was cool because we got to ask, why are you guys that are not doing it, not doing follow-up when you know it works and produces more deals? And the answer was pretty pretty incredible because it was, we don't want to be salesy or pushy. And we feel like if we do the follow-up, it's salesy and pushy. And speaking of like automated follow-up, because you can't really do a whole lot of manual follow-up for too long. Um, so it was this whole thing of, of thinking that they were pissing people off, which is a perception, right? It's a, a perception of perceiving how they're coming across or how their team's coming across by communicating often with somebody. Now, the people that are having success with follow-up are not looking at it like they're pestering somebody to sell their house, right? Because there's one way to look at it. I'm bugging this person, sell me your house, sell me your house, sell me your house. And if you're not motivated to sell a house, that does that will seem like, you know, you don't want to hear that, that if you were in that position, you wouldn't like it. But really what that follow-up is about is about staying at the, the I'll use it the forefront, right? Be a little bit cheesy here, but but staying at the forefront of their mind. Like you, it's about being in front of them and being remembered because you, of all the people that they contacted, were the only one that bothered to stay in touch with them. And so when time, this is another thing for my father, was like time always has a way of motivating people. 
and and you know you can hear you hear things about sales uh, stats about you know seven touches before you get it. I don't even think it's about that. I don't think it's that the seller needs you to contact them seven times before they sell to you. That might have something a little bit to do with it, but more likely it's over time. Time has a way and circumstances, situations have a way of changing that causes that motivation to raise to the level where they will sell to you. And when that happens, when that tenant or that, that leak spring, you know, they spring a leak or whatever, or something happens, situation happens in your life, medical problems, something, relocation happens. And you were the one that was sending them messages, friendly stuff like, hey, you know, did you ever do anything with that house and stuff like that? you're going to come to mind because you're the only person, right? And I, I think a lot of people will not go back and try to research again and call a bunch of people again. It's like, I'm going to call this person because they've stayed in touch with me. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there. I think the, the follow-up thing is key. I remember the first year at Flip Hacking Live, there was a presentation on follow-up and it was a very intricate follow-up system. It was like texting and emailing and, and calling and like uh, voicemail and, and postcards and all this stuff. And I was like, whoa. This is the, I still had like a sheet of paper and a pen and I was writing down the leads and whatever was on the top of the stack, I might get to like five of those note cards of people that called me. And this was in a totally different time where you could do stuff like that and still do even a couple of deals, which is yeah. not the case anymore. Right. And with, with everything, I think, I think the mindset of those folks that are saying that I, I don't want to come across too pushy and too salesy is the, is the problem ultimate problem um and and it's been a challenge for me like now selling some things on this podcast or events things like that i've really had to think about that because uh, you know a lot of times we're we're trying to provide an opportunity for somebody that if they want it they can take it if they don't that's fine like it's not pushy and it's not sales so somebody taught me something recently and and it changed the way that I think about like quote unquote selling. We always talk about sales and salespeople and how we hate them or we need a really good one and somebody who's very manipulative. Like it's not manipulative. It, he said that it's not selling, it's serving. So if you think that you're serving the customer and you're serving the person by providing them an opportunity. So I mean, first you ask your question, is the product that you have really good? Are you really good at what you do? Are you will you help them in their situation? Like are you genuinely looking to help them? Or are you looking to just make the biggest and most amount of profit possible? So can you serve this person by providing them an opportunity to get out of the situation that they're in, move out, whatever that is, whatever you're providing them, and you show up as a uh, to do a service and provide a service for them instead of sell them on why they should go with you and nobody else and talk bad about somebody else. But if you're just there, like right, right there with them all the time and serving them, then it changes the way that you think about what you're doing. So, you know, who could I best serve today? You know, the people in my CRM, the people that I talked to last week that I know are in a lot of pain and I can still provide that opportunity for them if they want it. And it's not saying sell me your house right now or, you know, really sleazy. And uh, I think I think when we think about it that way, then we can come up with, it becomes easier to do the things that we don't want to do or we, we're reluctant to do because like you said, it sounds pushy or sleazy or, or stuff like that. But you, you're right, it's our perception. Like we're putting ourselves in their situation, which we're not, right? We're using our frame of mind and our, our perception of reality of the way that our life is right now to put it in a person who is struggling big time, like really bad. And their house is the one asset that they have that they could potentially get out of whatever they're in. And we're providing them an opportunity to work with us. 
And we know that we'll serve them throughout that transaction as best that we can. So uh, I think the follow-up is really important. Um, it's and and kind of mindset between like getting out of the selling mindset and, and take like if we took sales out of it and came up with some other term, it would be a lot easier for at least for me. I know because I'm not I, I struggle with this a lot, especially with like you know the book and the and the, the events that we do and the mastermind groups and all that stuff. And what I've realized is like look at all the people that that get helped by this. So I have no problem you know serving people by providing them that opportunity and, and reaching out and saying is this something you might be interested in. You know, um, and it's not sign right here on the hood of the car, right? Uh, it's not like, uh, don't read the small print kind of stuff that we do. So um, how does your CRM help folks with that stuff? Maybe talk about the CRM a little bit, because I know I think you launched a new, uh, this forefront CRM uh, recently, right? Right, yeah, and it's actually, you know, re redesign of, of Flip Pilot, which is, uh, you know, so it's been around, it's not in beta, it's been tested and you know, hundreds of real estate investing teams use it across country and probably internationally. I think we got some people in other countries, but um, what it basically does is we, we went back to the drawing board on it because Flippilot 1.0, you know, launched several years ago. And the, the mistake that we made there was we tried to be everything to everybody. And, you know, we tried to, especially a lot of the people in the seven figure group and even eight figure group, you know, people in multiple markets and needed to do this, need to do that. It be, the problem was it did a lot of stuff, but it, it was just so kind of clunky and hard to use. Like it just was too much. It was just too much there. And so we went back to the drawing board and had to think, well, somebody even asked me, it was like, well, what is, what is it for? And it, it amazed me how long it took for me to say what it was for because it became so much, like it became such a big thing. And I think that that's actually the problem that most systems have because whenever I talk to everybody, about what they use, what they like and don't like about it. The, the most common thing is that it's just a pain in the butt to use, like setting up, configuring, it's always breaking, like all, any CRM, like all that kind of stuff. And they end up spending more time messing with their system and handling calls from their team about how to do something in the system than they actually are about doing business, right? Something's supposed to save time and make things easier actually ends up making life a little bit more difficult. And so we went back to the drawing board and just said, well, what, Let's like get rid of all assumptions, which is really hard for me because I've been in the business and I know that there's a lot of cool things that we could put into it. But it's like, let's get rid of all the assumptions that all this crap is needed, right? Let's get back down to the basics. Why did I ever need to build the first software system that I built for myself in my own business way back when? What was that for? What was the purpose? Keep track of my leads and do follow-up. And at the time, I didn't have a way to do automated follow-up in my first versions for myself that was on my laptop, but I kept track of my leads. And so let's just like focus on making a system that's so dead simple to use and actually somewhat of a joy to use because we all have software that we've used before we like using so that the teams and everybody actually uses it. And let's just be the best at that, right? There's other stuff that we can add to it and things like that, but we did that. We just did an embarrassingly, embarrassingly simple one for, for second version of Flippilot um, and then took the customer's feedback. We provided a vision though, that, that sort of path. And then we communicate constantly with them about what's next, right? So we're, we're all developing it sort of together and only putting the things and making it better where it makes sense to. So what it does is provides a visual representation, like a, like a virtual whiteboard, right? Everybody, investors got a whiteboard or whatever, some sort of system in their office, if anybody's still using an office. Um, 
to do that. So it's like if you've ever used Pipedriver Trello, you know, you can drag and drop. So you set up your workflow. It's all visual. And then it's got an algorithm for color coding red or, or green or whatever for the amount of time something's supposed to be in that spot. So if a new one comes in through a website, automatically comes in. If you've got call rail, a new call or text will come in, create a lead. All that stuff happens. And if it's there too long for whatever you set for like an hour or something, it goes red. So you know this has been sitting here for too long already. Somebody mm -hmm. should have already contacted them, all that kind of stuff. Communications all tracked. So you can see a log of, of any incoming outgoing calls. You can make sure that every incoming call was returned or somebody dealt with it, like somebody did something with it in text as well. And then you have the follow-up sequences. I mean, there's so much more to it, but at, to, to just present what it actually is, is strongest with is that. You know, CRM is like the hot topic all through our mastermind group for sure. And pretty much everywhere. It's like, what are you using? I, I, I'm having trouble with mine. It's just not my favorite thing. Like, um, why do you think that, why do you think that is? And how, like, as an investor that, like, who is this for primarily? So like, why is it so difficult to, to pick one or everybody always wants to jump ship, it seems, or looking for the grass is greener on the other side kind of thing. And then like, like, is this for somebody who's doing, you know, 10 different markets and hundreds of deals or, or what's, what is this, uh, what is this for? Maybe it's for a newer investor or who is it? Yeah, so I, I think maybe expecting a system to do more than it should, I think is one issue because then you're trying to, you're really getting into the territory of custom, right? If you're a bigger company, you know, meaning like multiple markets and you've got like three teams and you want to do all this crazy stuff, you know, it's probably time to get some custom solution because, you know, trying to force some other thing to work in that situation um, ends up being a bit of an issue. But um, you know, for, for individual operators up to teams of like five to 10, I think is like our prime spot, you know, what the people that we've got that are using it, just absolutely loving it. Um, and, and tracking all that kind of good stuff. Um, the, I think the issue also that people are running into with, with using things like Podio and spreadsheets and different things is just that you're using a general use tool that, that can handle all of it. But the usability sucks. I mean, it just, it's so, you, you've got disjointed information in different places. And so you train, you have to train your team how to use it. They have to remember it and be able to do that. Anything changes or breaks, you got to deal with it. And sometimes that's not very easy to do because it's not really built for specifically for this. So where the benefit of this is, is we have people come in and they don't have to spend a ton of time getting their team up to speed. Like it just, it, it's just very obvious. And that's what people love about it. We actually, because everybody's going to say, ours is simple to use. Ours is so easy to use. You're going to love it. It's just great. But what does that mean? Why and how is it simple to use? We've done everything to keep everything within like one or two clicks deep. I mean, the whole, the reason why it's so visual is because you can be working on something, you can click it, it'll pop up over it. You have all the information right there at a glance because we even thought about like what's most important. We, we don't just slap everything on there and you scroll through all of it. Communication's front and center because that's most important taking lead to a deal. And then other stuff is kind of on the side. You do your work, you do your notes, you make your calls out of the system, you make your texts out of the system, whatever you're doing, you close it, you're right where you left off. So it's one click in, one click out. You're right where you left off. You go to the next one. Same thing with like your task list. 
you see the task, you click on it, go to the property, you do whatever task you got to do, you close it, you're right where you were. You don't have to click over and click into a bunch of tabs and all this kind of stuff. So we spent a lot of time on the UI UX, which is user interface, user experience. So I think a lot of what you said reminded me of, I went to test pilot school for the Navy and uh, I was a test pilot for a couple of years in actually Maryland. And people think maybe a test pilot is like, you're flying all this crazy stuff and you know, the edge of the envelope kind of thing. But a lot of what it is, is it's cockpit evaluation, it's software evaluation, it's, it's you, we would fly a couple profiles, maybe it's a new weapon system that gets put on and you have to test it out, things like that. Um, unless you're developing a brand new airplane. And what we learned at school and, and had to do in the fleet while we did it uh, as development or te developmental testers was really how intuitive is a new platform or, or system like that. And so I remember when I was in England at school, I'd fly two flights and then have to do a check ride to go fly by myself on a brand new helicopter. And I would sit in there and it would we'd basically evaluate how, how easy is it to start the engine and learn the emergency procedures and those kind of things to, um, to get us up to speed uh, quickly. And then if there was a new software that we're testing, how many buttons, I remember testing a, a, a software where it's like I had to hit seven different buttons to get into and out of a menu and I, we can get lost. And like you said, is it easy to learn when you sit there and do it? But everybody says, if mine's so easy or mine's great, it's because they've been using it for years. Like when I sat next, so I would sit next to a British um, pilot who's been flying this, you know, the last five, 10 years. And they'd be like, I don't know why you can't figure this out. Like, well, can you just explain to me how to do it in five seconds? Like, well, yeah, I mean, just do all this. So I was like, you just hit like 15 buttons to arm a system that it's not even in the checklist to three of the things that you had to do. Like, how am I supposed to be able to do that? So it reminds me a lot of that. And I think CRMs are, are, are that. I think the simplicity, it sounds like, that you have is something that people should definitely look into and explore because that's what I find is it, is it simple? Is it intuitive? And you're right, the training process and onboarding process and learning process, we are always, we're always making up for something where it's, we're finding a workaround for things or a reason why it's, we take four extra steps, you know, a hundred times a day causes a lot of workload issues and things like that. So um, what, kind, what kind of follow-up system? I mean, we talk about follow-up, does it have something like that? Yeah, so it's got the automated follow-up where you can set texts and emails to go out and then tasks to be created for your team to call and, uh, and we set up where you can do a webhook out also as one of the steps. So if you have another system that does like, you know, direct mail or something like that, you can automate that as well. And, you know, it's just about keeping it simple. So we have that. And, um, and then I actually coded the iOS app myself because I just love doing that stuff. But so we have a native iOS app also for us. So if you use an iPhone, the, the mobile functionality for um, Android is, is there in a mobile browser and it's specifically made to work well in that. And then we'll be coming out eventually with the Android version. But um, so the app really makes it really nice too, because a lot of us, uh, you know, the, the problem that we come into also for, for using the CRM is a lot of times the person that needs to put the most into it is the person that's out going to appointments. Mm. So they're not sitting at a computer, you know, unless they're bringing their laptop and doing that stuff, which a lot do, but it's nice to have that mobile version to be able to like add notes and offers and all that kind of stuff so that they actually use it. Instead of doing all that stuff, saying when I get back to the office, I'll put it all in, and then they forget it. 
Yeah, if you can find a way to get the salespeople to update the CRM quickly and efficiently and often, you've got something there, I'll tell you that. Um, well, how can they find out more about it? How can they uh, check it out? Yeah, so Forefront CRM, F-O-R-E-F-R-O-N-T or CRM.com. And if you go there, there's we've got the, the the demo. So just click to get a demo and schedule a time on the calendar. And that way we can, you know, get some information from you about what you're looking for, your needs are, and uh, give you a demo tailored to that. Cool. I like the I like the idea of like who's this for and who's this not for. And I think defining our avatar and trying to figure out who that really is for. And like you said, you're trying to be everything to everybody. It's it's so hard. It's it's impossible, frankly. Mm -hmm. And um, you, we, once, I think as a business owner, we really define who that is. And if you're listening, this is the same thing for you. Like, who is your avatar? Like I talked about defining the seven-figure flipping business plan and, and who we're for and who we're not for and what, what our goals are. And if people want to figure out how to, you know, fire themselves, get some, get some financial freedom, time freedom, independence, those kind of things, um, then that's who, we, that's who we're for. And it's, it seems like Danny got very clear on, the avatar and who's going to use this and be you we have to be okay with those people saying no this isn't for me or us saying hey this isn't for you i think we just try to capture like 100 percent of the audience or the world that's listening and that's when we lose sight of uh, how we can be great right it's the same thing for you and your business buying houses selling houses stuff like that it's you know who is our avatar like what is the seller like the more we can dial into that the better marketer we can be uh direct the seller for sure so if you know the 90% of folks that you bought houses from and they're in the 55 to 70 year old range and they live in this, these three zip codes, then what if you just went really hard in that area uh, for that avatar and just that was your niche and you killed it. I know some people that do that do notes specifically or they buy for Airbnb uh, or they buy for rental properties or they buy from the courthouse and that's just what they do really, really well and they get really good at it. And that, I think that's, Danny mentioned my my success, I feel like I just got really, really good at direct mail. And I didn't, I didn't lose focus on that until I got really, really good at it. And then we added paperclip. And then we try to get really, really good at that. And then we would consider looking at something else. And so a lot of people just try to do like 10 different channels at one time, all this stuff. It's just because you don't know your avatar, you don't know where to look, you don't master one thing and you move on to the next one. And I think that's where we miss. We try to do that with this company too. We try to be everything to everybody, you know, six figure flipping, seven figure flipping, eight figure flipping, all this stuff. And it's like, it's too much. Let's focus on what we do really well. We help new investors in the runway program and we help experienced investors in the, in the Alpsi program. And uh, it's very defined. This is where you fit. Um, and it's not one of those two. Then if somebody needs more, uh, Danny, I was listening to you on a podcast and it made me smile. And it was, I mean, it made me maybe rethink a lot of what we do and how we think about folks that have been in our mastermind before. You, you use the words, um, we graduated from seven figure flipping. And I was like, what does that mean? I was like, that, that's, that's, that's interesting concept. Like, you know, cause I went to school for five years in undergrad and went to, got a master's degree. And um, I come back for the football games and the parties and the fraternity house and stuff like that. And, um, and really, if we think about that, like the folks that have um, gotten somewhere, they changed their business model or they went some, you know, they did something different then you know, that was interesting. So it really made me think about that. Of what does that mean? And who are we to people? And so figure out like, who we can be as businesses. And I realize I'm on like a huge soapbox right now. But if you're listening to this, like you are something to those sellers, you are something to those private lenders, you are all of those things. And uh, trying to figure out what that is, who your avatar is, the folks that you connect with the most, and go, you know, go really, really deep with them. And I've seen you do it now in hearing this. 
And it's really amazing. Sometimes we have to say, well, hey, we have to rework some things. Uh, same with us as a company. And uh, I think it's important to do that. So uh, guys, if, if you need a CRM, and I know everybody, everybody listening to this is probably like, hmm, like, I'm not sure if my CRM is the best one. But like, I'm going to go check it, this other one out. Or look at this. And, I, you know, I encourage you, it, it can be a big move, but I encourage you to find the, uh, the one. And, and really, I, I'm a big proponent of working with uh, certain people. Like the person is almost as important as the software itself, because if you know that that person is is really going to take care of you or listen to you and make changes and things like that, if they're able to, then that, that's important too. So I, and that's why I'm happy to have Danny on the show. I know he's an awesome guy. I, how oh man, the time that we spent together uh, at the mastermind meetings was eye-opening. I always love hanging out with you and you always make me laugh. Um, so it's uh, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, forefrontcrm.com. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a 14 day free trial too. So if you're, if you're banging your head against the wall, setting up and configuring Podio, especially, it seems to be a lot of what we get or don't want to spend $5,000 in like, uh, like, uh, you know, setup fee or something like that. Try it, check it out. Like 14 day free trial. Love to have you in there and see what it's all about. Nice. Well, thanks for spending the time today. Uh, a couple of things like uh, follow-up, uh, selling versus serving, taking fast action, those kind of things. Um, I think it's really important uh, for you guys. Hey, Danny, I got one more quick question for you. Um, for those investors, you've, you've been investing for a long time. And I'm curious real quick, and, and primarily for myself, a little bit selfish, but those investors that have been investing for a long time and have done thousands of deals, um, how do you like? How do you recommend they still keep it fun? Like, how do you still have fun doing this? And um, and keep, I don't know. I, I heard the story about your dad in the beginning of like your dad was uh, running around like rejuvenated. He's having an awesome time. You saw it, and uh, I'd be interested to hear like, is that possible? Do we get into like dips and troughs and, and peaks and stuff like that, or how do you keep it fun? Like, what's a, uh, something that you've seen in the past? Or That's a good good question. I think it's different for different people, but I think for me. It was like the when when there was no more challenge. Like if, if you're not growing, I I, I feel like the, the, it's never it's not going to be fun anymore. At least for me, I just feel like once you get to a certain place, if you find yourself getting a little bit miserable, you have to be honest with yourself about that fact, right? And find out what's going on. Because my dad's still doing what he does, and he loves it, right? He he didn't really get to that point. He just always loves doing what he does. He likes going to the appointments. He likes keeping things kind of small like that. And just continuing to to grow long term investments, um, but for me, you know, we we got burned out doing everything ourselves, trying to grow the company, and then built a team, which was fun and reinvigorated things. Uh, got into different marketing and and things like that. That that was always fun for me. Also, is like you know, getting to be really good at a marketing uh, channel. And you had talked about that briefly during this episode, but there can be some fun in that, right? If you're just shooting off the cuff and treating this like a hobby you could get burned out because you don't really what's happening, right? You're not looking at KPIs close enough to see the trends and, and becoming more of a business person in that sense. And then it's finding out what, what are you, right? If you're a business person that likes to build businesses, then building those teams and removing yourself from the day-to-day -day is probably the way that you're going to go or want to go. But um, if, if you enjoy, like my father does, going to appointments, you might always do that. And then you hire out the pieces that you don't like. I think it's important to do that because you can get burned out and, and do that. But honestly, like I've, 
I've run the whole gamut. Like we did everything ourselves, built up to a lot of deals a year, built the team, did all that stuff. And now, honestly, I'm just running myself and picking up rental properties as they come. Like I'm not actively doing a bunch of marketing and doing things like that just because I don't want to. Like I just want to pick up really good deals on rental properties and that's all I'm doing. So I guess just being willing to to uh, look at what you're doing and how much fun you're having with it and being clear about that freedom again, right? Because we can start chasing some kind of goal that ends up maybe changing for us because it's not really producing the thing that we're really after. Um, really recently, there was a book I had read and, and a question in there, it was a, it was a book for coaches, I think, for business coaches. And he said, a lot of times he'll go in and ask the client, what's your goal? The client will give the goal if they have one, hopefully they do. And then you'll say, okay, well, what's the goal behind that goal? And they'll have to think about it and then say, okay, well, I'm doing that because of this. I want, I really want this. And then it's like, okay, let's stop shooting straight for that first goal that you told me. And let's start shooting for the other one, because it might be a lot different path. Like this whole idea that you've got to create some machine where you're creating a million dollars or $2 million a year, isn't necessary for what you're trying to do. And so I think just asking that, because I asked that question before and I thought I gave myself a good answer and maybe it's changed, but I just recently, what's today? Yeah, yesterday, did it again. And really, I'm because of that, looking at that yesterday, I'm, I'm actually planning huge changes in what I'm doing right now. Because yeah, that's, that, yeah. I think that's an awesome answer. Like, uh, I love that question, actually. I haven't heard that before. Um, what I pulled out of that was just be honest with yourself. Like a lot of times we, and, and you know, I, I could have taken that advice uh, for years and making changes. Um, uh, sometimes we just like to break stuff just to uh, fix it when we get bored, you know, visionaries and entrepreneurs and stuff like that. It's, we, we get bored and we can become dangerous in our own business. So um, I, I asked that because when I heard about your dad, I remember when I got started, how much fun I was having. And there have been times over the last six years or so where I wasn't having a lot of fun and just trying to figure out like, how to keep it fun and um and and for me i think like you said it's different for everybody but be honest with yourself i like that so all right thanks man i appreciate you coming on the show and uh I'm, this is not the last that you'll hear of danny johnson on the show for sure i'd love to have you back again i always have fun talking with you and i learned a ton so thanks danny i appreciate it see ya